tell with the lots no um, <laughs> <laughs> both connecting with our people who are prepared to have these discussions that mm-hmm. are challenging mm-hmm. and, and I just saw it on Podmatch because there's so many people with podcasts and a lot of people will say theoretically they want to have challenging discussions but for real, for real, they don't want to have challenging discussions. So I could just tell. I was like, let me contact. I like that. I'm glad I give that off. I'm so glad I give that off. And um, it's crazy because I do believe that, you know, for doing podcasts as long as I've done, I'm realizing how many conversations that were a lot easier for me to do. But in the grand scheme, were still very impactful because it's like I just either haven't heard many men just want to even have a conversation about this with anyone or about this particular topic, even if it was a solo episode or with a, a particular guest of expertise. I think, um, I, I think I don't, I think I, it really puts in my head like, oh, I really am a very open and receptive individual. And I'm glad that that's what I'm bringing into this space. Um, but first, let's talk about one of the, uh, I think probably the most maybe lesser known aspects of your expertise um, being, well, at least less known to a lot of other people. And that's the child-free sociology. How, what, where, what, tell us about the road that led you to this particular um, line of, uh, of expertise to where that's something that you are now a leading expert on. Like what led to this particular thing? I, I, I can imagine that it wasn't, it didn't start that way. Yeah, so I am a permanently child-free Black woman, and I'm also a child-free sociologist. First, for people who are watching and listening to your podcast, child-free means those of us who are permanently 
deciding to never have children. And mm. that can include biological children, adoptive children. And that also includes many people who decide to get permanently sterilized or permanent birth control options. Mm. So I knew throughout my life that I never wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. And in child-free communities around the world, we call it pronatalism, this idea in certain cultures for thousands of years that to be an adult, to prove that you're worth living, you have to reproduce. Yes. More humans, right? Yes. And that's very common on parts of the African continent and for Black folk around the world, this, this notion that I mean, even things like the belief in birth control access. Mm. There are people, there are black people who believe that white people created birth controls to do ethnic cleansing and genocide. But that again is based on most black people around the world not being taught in school Mm -hmm. about thousands of years of health and medicine that includes thousands of years of birth controls. Mm. Because you know, most people are taught in school based on white people's version of science. And they truly believe that until white people created birth control in terms of a pill, that thousands of years of humans around the world were just humping and popping out babies. And that's just, that's not factual. Mm. There's always been holistic approaches to pregnancy reduction and prevention. And unfortunately, there's also always been forms of abortion. Mm. around the world as well. So I always knew I never wanted children. And so a lot of times people would try to insult us. Um, They try to insult our gender identity, our sexuality. And so it wasn't until I got in my 30s. I'm now, I'll I'll be 44 the end of this month. But it wasn't until I got in my 30s that I was like, you know, I know there are many people who feel this way. Let me just look this information up more. And most of the information we find, it tends to be white people and especially white women. And so I conducted the first known study with child-free black people around the world and mostly women. And I also created some groups of our people. And so I just started doing this work. I have not, I've done a lot of public writings because I oftentimes prefer to do public writings so that people can do internet searches Instead of always having to buy a book and all that stuff. But eventually I will do some manuscripts and write up Mm -hmm. the um, findings. But the good thing is that I started the research in 2013. So we have groups of Black people, particularly Black women, and not only in the United States of America, who have connected with each other. We've had discussions about religion and spirituality, how that connects to people's decision to oftentimes have children. So a lot of child-free people around the world who are black are also agnostic and atheist, which is often counter to African spiritualities as far as people are concerned. Mm. So so yeah, so the work I do, including child-free work, it also connects with the mental health work that I do. There are people who literally will tell black women, we don't care if you're sick, we don't care if you're miserable, you better have babies. And, and that includes black women who, if you tell someone you're suicidal, they'll say, okay, go ahead and have a baby though. Like babies are born in many cultures to make the adults happy. And that's not a baby's job. That's not a child's job. Yeah. And so this work that I do, it's just furthering that. 
And it's also, so I'm a Black feminist with a hint of womanism, but I always have to let Black women around the world know that if we're talking about gender equity, we can't pretend that white women are the first person do, people to do gender equity work because of the creation of the term feminism. And we want to understand that gender equity work means the choice to reproduce if you want to reproduce. Mm. It doesn't mean that gender equity requires us having to be a walking womb. And, and that's very important because oftentimes you'll see Black feminists and womanists, including some Black men who consider themselves being supportive, they'll spell woman with a womb. They'll say W-O-M-B-A-N. Yeah, yeah I've seen, I've seen and that. And they think that that's helpful. Like... That's also part of the African spiritualities, components of Rastafarianism, the original hotel. Sometimes you'll see people because they think that that's cherishing us. And I tell them, I'm not a walking womb. And mm. it includes those of us who do not have a uterus. We don't have a womb. So, so we don't have that. Now, are we no longer valuable to you? So talking about child-free, it's about challenging how people define the purpose of girls and women. Yes. Like we have to be with purpose and value outside of assuming we have uterus in a room, outside of even assuming we have a vagina, and definitely outside of us being these nurturers and mothers. Mm. Like those of us who are not doing any of that, that don't mean that you can kill us and then be like, well, she had no reason to live no how. So part of the work that I do challenges those aspects of cultures that are very prevalent around the world, yes. also in Black families and Black communities as well. And I think that was the most interesting um, part of um, of just looking up more about some of the work that you've put out, especially the things on your site, just explaining what it is that you do and what it is, why, why it's so important. And I think that that's the real true key element that I grasp within my kind of just research on who you are and how and, you know, what your work is about. It was truly, to me, felt like a, um, a pathway to what true black individual freedom could be um, for everyone. Just an example. It, it's not it's just, it being very objective, but it being an example of I chose this for my life. There is a history of individuals and humans on this earth who have chosen the exact same path as me and they went out to do very valuable things within society and I know that no one would dampen their contributions. I think it's interesting. I've had a lot more conversations with um, a lot of my own colleagues and college friends and things like that just about, you know, I think my generation definitely is one where we're in this real weird place of wanting to claim particular gender roles because they, because we I guess, emulate some, I don't know, some uh, privilege or emulate some power that those particular gender roles have, or maybe a sense of ease because you feel like you know what you're quote unquote supposed to do because you've seen it before. But I also see how there's definitely more conversations about what didn't work for generations prior because they were in these very staunch gender roles and it, it, it informed every aspect of their lives. And that particular pressure May, didn't help them, you know, it didn't help them. A lot of them, so many different elders speak to how they wanted to live different lives once they, you know, once they become elders. And I think we, at least as um, a mid-millennial of sorts, I truly think that we are 
we would really benefit from this particular uh, teaching and concept because I think so many people really are in a space of, it's not even thinking of being child-free as an option. It's just thinking of, well, let me just have one. (laughs) They're trying to, if anything, still trying to compromise what's really deep inside that this urge and this feeling to not have children for whatever, for whatever reason they, you know, feel inclined not to, which I don't even know if it has to be that deep. I think you can just make the decision just like so many people make the decision to um, have children. If I think it's because it's so, we're so indoctrinated to believe that that's a part of our purpose. That's a part of what creating a legacy is. Um, I think it's, um, we're attached to, the still ongoing kind of perpetuation of a tradition that I think uh, hopefully from the people who are listening to this are now discovering how much of an option it really is. And, um, but also yes. understanding what the blowback may be for you making those particular choices as well. And I think that's the, the part that at least can alleviate some pieces of anxiety that people may go through just because they're like, well, I don't know what my mom would think or whatever, whatever. Now I, I think it's something to that. What, what, is, what in your time, of studying these things, especially um, doing research within these black, more, mostly black spaces, was there a big difference in what you noticed domestically versus internationally within this within and the concept way, of uh, of being um, of the concept of being child free? Yep. And so, by the way, these were all black spaces. Okay. So anyone understand their blackness? They could not participate in my research because this is literally about who are not just realizing they're black when they saw my research announcement, right? <laughs> and like, Dr. Dennis, I think I might be black, so black space for real. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that's a big part of well, is those of us who decided never to have children realize we've grown. And that's a big cultural thing as well because those cultures around the world where you're supposed to defer to your family and elders, and if they say so, it's factual. And if they say you better give them a grandbaby, you're better. And so that's one of the discussions we had in the research and also in these Black child-free groups around the world. Many of us just had to be like, I just had to realize I don't care what other people say. Just that something. Like, and, and that's, <laughs> that's a difficulty. So, so when I do like reproductive work, when I talk about reproductive rights in Black communities, and also when I teach Black students about it's very common for sometimes older Black students will say things like, well, that's the reason why all of us as women exist. And they say it like it's common sense, which is why I always challenge the phrase common sense. Because a lot of times when people say something is common sense, it's based on what they've always been taught is factual. Yes. It could be 100% false, right? And so I remember probably like five, six years ago, one of my older Black women students said, well, Dr. Dennis, sisters in here, children, everybody know that. And a whole bunch of us was like, no, we're not. Like, we're not. And she was actually shocked to hear that. Hmm. And so... In doing this work, and so by the way, there are black men who participated. And one of the difficulties in this is some of the black men did not want children, did not want to use birth control on their part. So there hmm. were, and they were dating black women, and they said, "Well, if she gets pregnant, that's life." So that patriarchy as well that teaches, you know thousands of years and cultures where 
boys and we gotta do is walk around with their penis in their hand and the rest is up to the girl, right? So that's also child for child free work. Was there a different national and international? Yes, there were some differences. So nationally, you know, it's America and Canada. We tend to have more access to birth control options. Mm. It, it's not completely equal access because birth control access still varies by socioeconomic status, which connects directly to race and gender and sexuality for people who are in same-sex relationships as well. But there's still relative more birth control access than in some nations. So I interviewed people who are from the continent of Africa who moved to Europe, they will explain how they don't go back to see their family in Kenya that often because the first thing the family will do is say, you done been brainwashed by the white people and thought that you had a choice on what you do with your body. Oof, man. So that's also a very narrow view of, of thousands of years of African people. Cause again, there are cultures on the continent of Africa in which there were different gender identities, mm -hmm. different gender non-identities, different mm -hmm. sexualities, all that, right? Yes. So we also have to challenge that falsehood because it's, it's oftentimes, because I am pan-African and pro-Black, and it's very common for Black people, and particularly Black men and cisgender heterosexual Black men to falsely present pan-African and pro-Blackness as patriarchal. Mm. This idea that there was only one way to be a man mm -hmm. or even a boy yes. for thousands of years, which ignores our people for thousands of years who did things that if they did it now, they'd be called a punk or whatever, right? And so, so that really connects when we're talking about child-free work. A lot of the child-free people who participate in my research they actually had to learn more about our cultures as people of African descent. Mm. Because, again, they were taught a very narrow view that was based on pronatalism, this idea that to counter the effects of slavery, Jim Crow, and 529 years of white terrorism, they had to reproduce. And so that happens, like, some cities... The black communities are showing videos like about Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of Planned Parenthood. Yes. And if anyone's familiar with Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood in many cities, like when I volunteered for Planned Parenthood, they've intentionally made sure they're not doing what Margaret Sanger did. So Margaret mm. Sanger intentionally had access to birth controls in poor environments and especially black environments. And that's back also when Dr. W.B. Du Bois, who's also black sociologist and criminologist, yes. was on one of her committees. In his mind, he probably was helping increase access to reproductive rights, but it had a different outcome. Yes. And a lot of black people are still holding on to that. And so there are, unfortunately, there are local black community groups across the nation that are particularly reaching black people who are poor and they're falsely teaching that birth control is a form of genocide. Yes. And even teaching that condoms are a form of genocide. Yeah, so which is extreme. That. Yes. So we have a lot of people, a lot of Black people, not just in America, but around the world, who are being taught that the only way to fight for our people is to go in there raw dog, humping, reproducing, 
Doesn't matter if there are sexually transmitted infections. Many of them are permanent infections. It doesn't matter if you're popping out babies. It doesn't matter if the babies are born with defects and disabilities. The idea is you're countering what's considered genocide. And so this child-free work mm. for Black people really opens up a discussion of not only our individual choice to not to have children, yes. but why so many people think that they can force us. Like people used to say to me when I was younger, now I'm in my mid forties, but when I was a little younger, they would make jokes, especially black men. They would say, well, if you get raped, you can't control what happens. Mm. First of all, those of us who are sterilized, we're not gonna get pregnant regardless, but the fact that you would use rape as a joke. Yeah. And second of all, I would tell these black men, don't assume you can't get your ass whooped. Like, using that black... <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, using that cisgender, heterosexual, black masculinity... Yes. Pretending that you can go around raping everyone and scaring us into yes. compliance implies that you think that you can beat everybody ass. Yes. And that's just not factual either, right? Yes. So that's another way that we have to challenge patriarchy. we got to challenge, you know, that masculinity notion. Yeah. That's like you're going to force us to comply. You're going to scare us. But, but as when I researched uh, child-free Black people, a lot of child-free Black people come from cultures around the world where literally they're told they don't have a choice but to have kids. Mm -hmm. And if you don't comply, we're going to force you to have a kid somehow, which includes rape. Yes. And that's unfortunate, but that's also part of it. That is definitely a very um, stark difference, I guess, but it kind of it weighs on the levels of, you know, overt and covert, because I believe it may not get to the point of literally rape within and in, uh, in, in, at least in, within America at all times. But at least the almost kind of like family sponsor coercion of like, you're going to have a baby. We found somebody who's who's going to impregnate you. So we need you to just act right be nice to the man and give him give him a, some babies so we can have some grandbabies and i think it's it's so interesting i remember i was i was just saying to my mom yesterday just about it's breaking down to her just like what projections mean and just understanding how no matter what in terms of communication we have to see things through our own lens she was like i, I explained to her how like like empathy and apathy and sympathy still have to go through you. They're not they're not a matter of just a immediate human reaction. You actually have to feel, oh, something tragic happened to you. I feel sad for you. And it even may come from a place of of um just position. Where it's like, if I was there, you know, if I was in that position, I would feel this way. And that's where the reaction comes from. But I do think I always wonder, you know, especially in popular culture and, and truly in real life, because it's mirroring that what is this? Um, and I think it's because obviously my male privilege that I don't have to consistently think about these things about like, oh, I it's been a while. I, ain't, I haven't thought about when am I going to have some kids? <laughs> and my, my sister, uh, I guess before, my sister had children early. So I guess my mom never really had the opportunity to kind of desire or, or be like, y'all, when y'all going to give me some grandkids? So I really don't know the personal feelings and effects. And I don't believe my sister would say the same, but I do think it's interesting that I never have to think about those things. And I think most men don't ever have to think about, you know, what role in place are we uh, kind of acting within these things and the role that we play within it um, is so, it's so faulty. 
it's not even a, a like fatherhood is truly something that could be seen as I think men complain about how fatherhood is a quote unquote a respected uh, <laughs> a status to be in because it's like you don't get gifts, great gifts on Father's Day. Fathers just have to be, you know, they can be dumb and they can be this, they can be that. And I think more men need to understand how we give those things life. You know, I believe I believe mothers and, and people who take on mother, um, the role of mother for different people, there's there's a sense of demanding respect because it's like I'm raising you. There's a there's this intimate sense of teaching and exchange. While I think for so many men, when it comes to especially procreation and reproduction as a whole, it's such a very passive or laxed role that we even that we're at a place now where we give cookies to men who show up for their children as if that's you know not the expectation. Or that's or that's the the expect that's exceeding the expectation, I guess. Um, and what you're saying is is accurate. Don't forget what you were about to say. But I mm -hmm. do just want to say what you're saying is accurate historically and currently. There are going to be some black people who watch your podcast and they're going to be offended by what you're saying mm -hmm. because most of them deny that patriarchy, male men dominance cisgenderism and heterocentrism mm -hmm. exist in African families and African cultures. They deny that. They These are oftentimes the same people who claim that Black boys and Black men are the oppressed within our people. Mm. So they will not say that Black boys and Black men have male and men privilege, mm. especially for cisgender heterosexual. They will claim that we are just adopting white people's criteria, which again ignores our cultures around the world for thousands of years. And there are black men who will say that they are being unfairly depicted as not being good fathers. Why? Because of the white standards of, of anti-blackness, particularly anti-black men, mm. which again, that ignores the fact that when we're talking about African people around the world, a lot of times when people talk about pan-African pro-black work, they tend to highlight the work done by guess who cisgender heterosexual black men mm. right yes thousands of years of trillions of people but they tend to only find the oral history and written work of cisgender heterosexual black men around the world including in usa and canada mm -hmm. and this includes black men who oftentimes spend most of their time devoted to their work based on this idea that the black woman's going to raise the family you can also talk about the Industrial Revolution, how that shifted Black men into the labor force, Black women as well, because we're talking about poor people having to work. And then we can talk about what happened with the welfare state, what it meant when the government still says to qualify for some type of government assistance, you bet not have a full household of adults who can work like in the form of a traditional family. Mm -hmm. so, this all goes together. And so that's why I always tell our people that you can feel some type of way about an issue, but you're feeling some type of way cannot ignore historical and current facts. Yes. Like a lot of our people ignore facts because the facts do not comply with their religious beliefs or their patriarchal beliefs. And that's when I tell them your beliefs are part of the power majority. That's actually part of the oppression of our people. Mm. So I'm work. My work is specializing on destroying all of that, yeah. including within our culture. Yes, because we can't talk about liberation and freedom from oppression from white people 
if now you proud because you oppressing each other. Yes. Like that's the ultimate stupid as well, right? But I agree. But I think what's powerful about the work that you're doing is the true universalness of it all. The fact that you, you know, just based off the last way that you answered this last question, speaking to these particular traditions that go way, way back that were to a level of complete, you know, violence and perpetuating rape culture to the highest degree to where they're literally forcing children onto different women. I think it's it says so much because I think um, so I, I feel like I come across so many different um, just African-Americans who feel that so many of the evils of America and of the world kind of, you know, were created when America was created, which I think, you know, there, I guess you can say you have a point for certain things. But when you find mm-hmm. out, I think it's always a better and fuller picture to find out, oh, some of these things were, emu- the, these, they didn't create these things, they emulated these things. Some of these things, right. re, you know, predated them and they were just following suit. And now we're just being served the version of it as if they're the proprietors of this method of, of thinking and kind of socializing each other. I would love to know in terms of, you know, the empowering aspects of this work, what have you seen from the different men and women who are pro, I guess, pro child, pro child free? How, what are, what are, what, how can they speak to the advantages of making those decisions if they were, you know, hard or easy, whatever that is, I think it's good to at least speak to those particular lives and you being a person who's, uh, who identifies as that as well. I would love to know how, how, I guess, how you see the benefits of that choice that you made. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's liberating in terms of being able to find spaces, particularly with our people as African black people mm-hmm. in which you're not preached to about children. Like literally you can show up in these spaces and people don't <laughs> spend the whole time <laughs> asking about children. And, and that's actually very liberating, especially for women. Cause men are accustomed, as you know, to going into spaces and never talking and about kids, have children People won't necessarily say, how are your kids doing? Sometimes mm-hmm. they do. Maybe they don't, right? And so, so that's liberating to have those conversations in which, as Black women, it doesn't matter what we're doing in our life. A lot of times, people are just staring at us, waiting for the opportunity to say, how are your children doing? Mm. So when we say, I don't have children, like a lot of people consider that small talk with Black women. Like There's different forms of small talk when it comes to communicating with Black women. Mm. And I want people to understand it's not just white people who do this. It's literally most people across different ethnic, racial, (laughs) religious identities. It's just how they've conceptualized African Black women's existences, including girls as well. Yes. Getting around us for a lot of people, small talk is how are your children doing? And then then that comes a strong Black woman thing, like whose power are you fighting for this week? That kind of thing. So it's all based on this idea that Black females, Black girls, and Black women really only exist to fight the power for everyone else, Mm. sacrificing ourselves for everyone else. So there are people who believe if we don't have children to sacrifice our life for, we better be sacrificing our life for other people, like random people. Mm. Um, And I... Mm. I mean, there are people, who, and, and there are many Black people who believe that. They think we have the audacity to not reproduce. Therefore, you better be fighting for your people. And I mean, I am an activist, but here's the thing. 
my fighting for my people is not in place of what I did with my body. I don't wake up doing this health work for our people and say, whoo, I'm doing this to win my right to live because I ain't had no babies, <laughs> you know? That's not what this is about. And so that's another thing when we're talking about gender equity because black boys and black men tend not to have to constantly prove why they exist. They might feel they have to prove that to white people in particular, but they tend not to have to prove that to black people unless we're talking about black boys and black men who are you know, gay, bisexual, queer, gender non-identifying or gender non-conforming. But if you're a cisgender heterosexual black boy or black man, people consider you here, we're happy you're here, <laughs> You ain't got to explain much to us. You're just going to yeah. be happy you're here. Yeah. And so I, I challenge Black men a lot because a lot of Black men, they want unconditional love and support from Black women. Yes. And our unconditional love and support is oftentimes empty-handed. Like, we tend not to get much back. Like, we'll protest when Black men are abused. We'll do you know, trainings to address Black men having cancer. But mm -hmm. when it's time for Black women's health and defense to be the issue, Black boys and Black men tend to find a hobby to do or go to work or something because we're not considered as important. Why? Because of that whole notion of strong Black women. Even without support, we're expected to just show up with the baby on our nipple regardless, right? Yes. Certainly. So this challenge work <laughs> challenges all of that because there are yeah. black women around the world and black girls and females who don't have a gender identity, who have noticed this in their families, in their communities, in their cultures, where they've been told to be silent over there, mm -hmm. come support this. But if you need something, we don't want to hear it because we ain't got time. And so we're challenging hmm. all of that. I love it. I love it. And I hope everyone listening can tap into your work and tap into the idea because I think it's even interesting to understand this particular mindset and approach, even if that's not something that you emulate, I think there's a pathway to just, you know, to true individual freedom, you know, and whatever that looks like for you, you know, to me, I, I, I really do see this particular ideology. If this is something that you feel connects with you and you feel aligned with, is a true pathway in terms of our overall thinking of our community as a whole. You know, there, there's so many different, uh, you know, quote unquote, seen as alternative choices of life that are off the beaten path or non-traditional that I truly believe that would make people feel a lot better about their lives that they live. But they feel so, so um, just pre-designated to follow a, def a, a specific path and if they get off that path, that brings them more anxiety than anything because it's the, it's the unknown of what this possible freedom may bring to them. So it's like, I might as well stay on program. I'm, I don't know. I don't know, if the, I, I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know if I'll be okay. I don't know if I'll get the support. I don't want to lose the, you know, the relationship I have with my mom. And so many different things keep people in this um, narrow space of living instead of, instead of really truly accepting abundance and expanding themselves. And I, and I really hope um, I really hope people take that in. And but I do want to I do want to pivot very, uh, very slightly to some of the other works that you do. And, um, you know, it's, I guess, truly unfortunate that so many different corporate spaces have now 
discovered what the words diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> mean. They have always existed, and um, evidently there's some, that's something they should have, you know, had memos and certain infrastructure on <laughs> within their company. A lot of them um, are literally starting the work, quote unquote, the work or or making these particular changes or trying to progress out of what they've been literally last year or this year or in the past few years, especially within uh, in, in terms of the, uh, I guess, the creation of the Black Lives Matters movement. I think that's where it started to feel a lot more um, visceral in terms of conversation politically and everywhere else. Because um, when I think about, you know, things like affirmative action and all these very kind of very historically kind of racial, very racially driven kind of practices or things, especially within corporate spaces, they always feel very spaced out to me. You know, just when I think about unions and how that was a hundred some years ago. And then I think about um, just being allowed to work in certain spaces and being able to be management, being able to become politicians, all these things felt so far apart from each other. These, these, these weren't very quick progressions that kind of all happened at once. Um, and you also do work within this space. And the thing that I like the most about how you present and how you diversify what you do versus anyone else who says they're in the diversity, equity, inclusion um, space, I guess, in, in terms of teaching and, and instructing people on what that means. But you have results-based you know, you have results, a very results based system. And I would love to know more about kind of, you know, what that means. And because I, I think that's a very big difference from someone who literally comes in and, you know, has probably all the best intentions, but are ultimately, you know, the leaders of this kind of kumbaya instead of truly leaving and everyone being impacted and having to do more work and it, it being the start and truly you seeing and being reflected like, this is where y'all at. And if you want to be better, these are the things you need to change. You know, <laughs> tell me, tell me more about what's this results-based approach that you have. Um, and I guess what's the, why, why is that the approach and what's the biggest difference, I guess? Yeah. So my work is based on original work over the centuries. So it's mm. not based on acronyms, catchphrases. It's not based on a book that's a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> the seven simple on, steps. <laughs> yeah, it's not based on the TED talk that someone saw that was so cool. Mm -hmm. It's not based on trendy, cool stuff. It's literally based on the work that indigenous people and African Black people have done for centuries, mm -hmm. have been lynched for doing, have been fired from jobs for doing. I always tell people when you're talking about gender justice work, when you're talking about racial justice work, when you're mm -hmm. talking about sexuality justice, disability justice, it has to be based on work that's always been done before it became cool and trendy and before there were such things as hashtags. Mm. Because that's the authentic work that people were doing before you could even get paid to do this training. Yes. I, I think about my Black elders, um, including the Black sociologists in my own life, who they're activists who started doing these racial justice trainings in the 1960s and 1970s. They mm -hmm. tell me that we've been doing trainings with white people since the 1960s. Therefore, white people have had enough trainings because if white people truly cared about racial equity, they would teach that to every generation. Yes. Because that's how racial equity works. 
That's how we change school curriculum. That's how we change school accreditation. That's how we train medical and health schools, medical and health policies. That's how we get rid of police departments. It literally is, you don't just attend a training and walk around smiling because you got a cookie. You literally are saying, damn it, I'm tired of trainings, which means the onus is on me to change these practices, do annual assessments of these, of these changes and make sure changes are really happening. That's why I'm results-based. It's not just the training. So when people hire me, they've trained already and they're tired of nothingness. Mm. There's some people who bring me in and they be the token so they can put Dr. Dennis on it. Like I'm gonna show up smiling, you know? And instead I show up, have an honest discussion of historic and current facts. I don't use abstract language. So if, if you hired me to talk about racial justice, I do not use white people's dictionary definition of racism. You're not gonna be a grown adult <laughs> pretending yes. that racial categories mysteriously were created mm -hmm. and that white people are mysteriously the racial power around the world, although being 11% of the world population and mysteriously the racial power majority in USA and Canada in which there are more than 60% of the population despite indigenous land. For mm. years, right? Yes. So I it. I do not start off giving dictionary definitions. I don't say, hey, grown folk, here's what, means. here's what gender means. I don't do any of that. As a college professor, even my students who are in more senior level courses, they know that you better have read this before you showed up. Because mm. I refuse to waste hours of our lives that are uncertain already, yes. doing dictionary definitions or even textbook theories, because now people are fighting over a theory that Black people presented from the 1980s. This theory is based on centuries of Black activism scholarship. Critical race theory, white, right? Yes. Now yeah. white people on both sides are fighting over this, but the white people who are pro-critical race theory ain't doing anything to really change the curriculum without needing a theory as an excuse to not change the curriculum. Mm. You know, these are all types of disguises that for centuries, indigenous people and African black people have warned us about. Yes. Be apprehensive about things that become situationally popular. Mm. Be apprehensive about people picking up a theory, whether it's Karl Marxian conflict theory. First of all, Karl Marx was not the first person to critique the economy, we're talking about thousands of years, Asians, indigenous, Aboriginal, Africans. So that's another problem when people act like Karl Marx and Frederick Engels were the first to do this. Yes. It's all based on this idea that knowledge for thousands of years is not real unless white people discover it and say it's legitimate, not just for existence, but also legitimate for justice work. So the work that I do, I tell people, come into this space, mm -hmm. being prepared to be uncomfortable. You're not going to come out of this space thinking that anyone can be racist. You're not going to come out of this space thinking that racism is synonymous with prejudice and bias. This is not a bias training. I despise implicit bias trainings and unconscious bias trainings. I don't care what people are thinking in terms of whether you hate me as a Black woman. What I care about is who has the power to actually harm people. And what can we do in terms of policies, practices, 
and assessments to reduce the tendency for you to not only hate me as a black woman, but now you're gonna mess up my prescription medication at the medical office because, oh, here comes a nigga. Mm-hmm. Let me give her this medication because niggas are ignorant. They don't know the difference. Yeah. There literally are medical and health professionals who believe that. Yes. I'm not stopping y'all from believing that, but I'm stopping you all from being able to do that to us. Yes. That's good work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Because um, as, as, as me and you have spoke about, you know, I think there's so many people, especially within the past, you know, past year who have been kind of, you know, either propelled or been asked to step in and do more efforts that are way out of their wheelhouse. They are whole, you know, marketing consultants now being asked to lead a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, um, in, in, internal group of sorts to train whomever because they just so happen to seem like the blackest black person in the room. Um, and I think it, it, it is interesting, but I do, I do believe that, you know, we do, we do have to understand where, what's in our particular wheelhouse of things, what is in within our expertise, and where we can actually pass this along to someone like yourself if, if, if you, you know, accept that particular commission to do the real work and not for not to kind of play the guessing game of like, look, this is what I think. It would be better if this, it would be better for that. And going off of all these things that really may not do the full objective, objective sense of the work, you know, because you're really only basing it off of your particular experience and the experience of people, you know, anecdotal experiences around your co- other black coworkers. But there may be an even deeper issue an even deeper um uh, situation and i think even more than anything it uh takes away from those vanity um concessions that i think we've seen so much uh, from the paintings of roads and murals and you know creating these particular policies that really truly are just you know <laughs> black band-aids you know they're not really solving an issue they're just literally just you know putting a band-aid over certain things or just giving some type of consolation prize because it's not it's not that big of a deal it's no real skin off their nose to let people claim uh juneteenth as a holiday now or have the day off those things aren't truly vital in making progress and making people actually feel like they're comfortable being at work um and feel that they can excel at whatever it is that they may be doing professionally um, it's, it's, it's something that I, I think I had to speak to my, um, former employer about just like, no, there's, there's not too many black people that I know that don't consider when they are about to work for a place, how much they may have to deal with in terms of the racial disparity and, and the racial climate and culture of a particular company. I think, I don't know anyone who's, where that's not a part of the conversation. Like, oh, okay. How much they going to pay you? How, uh, the, eventually you get to the question of, well, how is it up there? Like, are they, you know. Did you get a sense of the things? And I think it's a sad thing that we always have to carry that particular um, discretion. But nevertheless, we're literally accepting the worst. It's just a, the, a certain degree of how worse, how how bad can it really be? You know, we know that it's there. We know that it's you know it's majority a majority white company. And even if it is a company that you know quote unquote claims to be diverse as to how they came about to that point, you know? And and if that's truly genuine as well. 
is um I think you're doing great great work because this this is the types of things we really need. Well, so we're so the work that I do, and I have friends and colleagues who are doing this real results work. It's not the work where you're going to become a millionaire. So whenever I see people who mm-hmm. do equity work getting paid twenty five thousand dollars for a speaking gig. Uh, you already know that you're getting paid that much because white people are happy. Mm. White people are, if you're talking about racial justice, white people are not going to pay you a lot of money to really challenge white people. And that includes white liberals, white progressives, and white anti-fascists. So this is where, when we're talking about this equity work, we have to also hold ourselves accountable. Those of us with underserved and minoritized identities and experiences we got to hold ourselves and each other accountable because the original African kumbaya was not about people holding hands and ignoring problems. The original kumbaya really is about us coming together to make changes. Mm. So a lot of times, uh, and that's part of the brainwashing of uh, European white education that has taught us things like kumbaya means we're now ignoring problems and just hugging each other. Yes. And so um, it's, it's similar cultural appropriation that white people have forced on us to when you hear people in workspaces say, are y'all ready for powwow? That's cultural appropriation of indigenous cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous people who have not assimilated into whiteness tend not to want to hear non-indigenous people say powwow. That's extremely insulting, right? And so kumbaya means that we don't come together to make this change. So... The onus, though, is on those of us who are minoritized, whether that's disability services, gender identity, sexuality, race, ethnicity, language, religion, you have to understand when you're going to say no. Yes. Don't use Dr. Du Bois' double consciousness as an excuse to be a token sellout. Don't claim your code switch. (laughs) That's the code switch phrase. I'm so tired of people saying it because people are saying code switch now to justify tokenism. Yes. When I do this work, whether I'm presenting for medical and health professionals, whether I'm presenting for school officials, teachers, the moment white people get uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and angry, it tends to be the black people who come to the rescue of the white people. (laughs) White people can essentially cuss me out call me a racial slur, call me a gendered slur. What tends to happen is the black people in the room stand up on behalf of the white people and tell me that I should not have said that. Mm. Think about what that means for 529 years of white power and white terrorism around the world. (sighs) Think about what that means when I'm in this space to address racial inequity, disability services, and the people who are underserved and minoritized are coming to the rescue of the power majority oppressors in that space. Mm -hmm. They might use, I need to keep my job as an excuse. They might use, I need to finish this academic program as an excuse. But I always tell them, whatever your excuse for being a token sellout, you are now the template and the photo they will use on their marketing pamphlet. Mm Because they will use you as an excuse to not make any changes. Why? Because the Negro attacked Dr. Dennis and rescued the day. Now we don't have to make changes. Yes. And this literally happens every time I do a presentation. The Black people in the room get uncomfortable on behalf of the white people. Because they have allowed white people's colorblind racism in that space. Mm. 
They have allowed white people to pretend that race doesn't matter. They've allowed people who have able health to pretend that disability doesn't matter. They've allowed cisgender heterosexuals to pretend we love everyone without noticing that the restrooms are mostly for cisgender people that you know, you either be, better be a man or a woman. And if you're neither, you better figure it out. Like all of these are ways that oppressors operate every single day. They don't have to think about it because they consider it normal. And the underserved people oftentimes have had to adjust. Mm. And some underserved people literally get offended when those of us who do this work come into their space and bring up the tough reality that they've brainwashed themselves to ignore. <sighs> so when I do this work, yeah. I always tell them I'm coming into this space, like before COVID, Black people wanted me to come do these trainings for their workplaces. And I had to tell them, what are the demographics represented there? And they would say, it's mostly white people. And I told them, be prepared for the white people to say no. And they were like, nah, they're cool. I said, they're mm. cool because you're not challenging them. Yes. Again, that's centuries. White people are always going to be cool, including white liberals. Yes. If you celebrate them, just like with the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd was murdered, Black people were easily impressed. So celebratory of white people showing up, marching. First of all, it was COVID. So most of the white people did not have to go to school work so they could show up. But the fact that Black people are so easily impressed, instead of congratulating the Black people in those spaces who are more likely and even killed by police for being there, they worshiped the white people. Mm -hmm. And then over time, the white people were like, okay, we've got enough praise. I'm going to go back to pretending race doesn't. I keep telling Black people, we have five centuries of facts why do you keep needing to be reminded of facts? Because mm. white people have no reason to stop. White people have no reason to stop, whether that's when you're at the grocery store or in a school business, police departments, medical health professionals, white people literally have no reason to stop if we're going to comply regardless. If you're going to show up for work regardless, if you're going to take that regardless, if you're going to comply regardless, white people are like, why should I put effort if your Negro self going to be there tomorrow anyway? Exactly. And I, uh, oof, it's a trip. I, I think we live in a very, um, a very dynamic world <laughs> because I think um, it's, it's moments where, you know, I've, I feel like we get those really interesting glimpses of feeling like, oh, we may, have, you know, we can keep hope alive and we can do these particular things because we feel very much, um, entertained and feel, I guess, our, at least our emotions being at least played with the, to a certain degree when we see these particular acts of quote-unquote progression that occur from tearing down statues and finally creating laws and things like this. I think for me, I think in the past, I say four years, um, I think it's when I stopped kind of, I don't know, I don't think I really ever had too many rose-colored glasses about America as a whole. But I think at a very early age, I didn't know how to question it. You know, I didn't know what to even say back. It just didn't sound right. <laughs> just literally the the stories of certain things and the teachings within class genuinely felt, 
I don't know, like some information was missing or something was just, it just didn't sound right to me. And it could have been just the sheer, you know, lack of hearing so much about myself and hearing so much about conquest when you're talking about American history, which to me, at least growing up in the part of the South I did, it felt like that was much of what American history was. It was, we found it, we conquest yet again, we established more conquesting, we had some beef with some with some indigenous people, still more conquesting, have beef with a different type of indigenous people and another part of them. And it just kept becoming a story of conquest, conquest, conquest. Just true, just, just dominance. And I, I think for me, it was just kind of something just felt so faulty about that particular um, narrative and, and, and um, felt dispowering about that, but I think at a very early age, I, I, I didn't know the verb, I didn't have the language or the verbiage to even challenge, you know, my teachers in high school and all these different things about these things. And I think um, that's a big, I think that's a big thing for me that I think I want um, my, my nieces and nephews and my nieces and nephew and my own future children to be um, really informed about, really have a true sense of the world that they live in because I think it's, to me, it's interesting that people coddle children to the point of, you know, where they truly have to come into the learning about what America really is at a time where they could have already known. You know, they're in their teens, or in college, and now they're learning all these things, having this kind of awakening of sorts, um, as so many people do. Um, and I always wonder the demographics of those people who just realized that then. So when I meet Black people who are just learning facts mm -hmm. when they get to college, mm -hmm. like if they took my course, I am outraged. Mm -hmm. I'm not only outraged at them, but I'm outraged at their family. Yes. For me, I'm born and raised in Richmond, VA, which is the second capital of the Confederacy. So my parents, Black educators, Black activists, they taught my brothers and me, starting in elementary school, they required us to watch BET News back in the day when BET had news. They required us to watch Tony Brown's Journal. Black folk, if you're watching this, go to TonyBrownsJournal.com and see one of the most prolific Black journalists and see all the work that he's done since the 1960s, 1970s. We were required to look at all of that. We were told not to rely on what the school teaches us because mm -hmm. although my brothers and I went to predominantly black Richmond public schools, mm -hmm. they're all white controlled. Every single school <laughs> in the United States of America and most of the world, they're white controlled. That's based on what's in the libraries, including on the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. Whose science are you learning? Whose version of mathematics are you learning? When white people stalk and harass me, they oftentimes will say things like, mathematics is mathematics, science is science. Well, no, actually. We have tens and thousands of years of humans. We have sciences and mathematics and arts expressed orally, not written down. Therefore, it's easily lost, unfortunately. But we have African mathematics, indigenous mathematics. It's literally tens of thousands of years of forms of knowledge that are not taught in 99% of K through 12 and colleges and universities around the world. Literally, you can get a PhD in mathematics, a PhD in biology, a PhD in art, a PhD in history, and you really think that white people, especially white men, but white people in general, are the main authors, are the main researchers, 
are the main, because they're the main publishers, right? You literally can, and you learn that, and then you teach it to every generation. Mm -hmm. That includes school teachers. That's why I hold school teachers accountable. When they talk about changing the books in their schools, I tell them, I'm so not really interested in you changing a book for your class because that's the equivalent of doing a special topics course. If you're doing a special topics course on indigenous history, but the main history class is about white people, then you have failed. Okay. Mm. Purpose is not to make us a subtopic. Black and brown people are the majority of the world. Yes. Therefore, we should never be a subtopic. We're not a special topic. When you take history, arts, literature, music, mathematics, sciences, including the social sciences, you should come out of it with the fuller span of thousands of years of forms of knowledge around the world and an explanation that most of this knowledge has been stolen and put in white people's museums, stolen and white people's names have been put on it as creators. And the fact that people are offended, frightened, and white people are angry by that fact just makes it all the more fact, yes. right? Because when white <laughs> people get angry at something, it's because it's fact. And we're talking about five centuries of white people being allowed to steal fact, including the origins of, of Christianity and, and Judaism mm -hmm. being presented around the world as mostly about white people, which is not the origins of Judaism and Christianity in particular. And so that's why the work that I do, including these equity trainings and policy changes, mm -hmm. it's based on facts that will offend people whose power is based on perpetuating lies. Mm. I'm neither deterred. I'm not silenced. I'm not scared. Uh, you know, we're talking about five centuries of white people doing anything possible to scare us, to kill us, to hurt us. And those of us who are not silenced and scared by that are the law because they're accustomed to black people marching down the streets in protest, but still going to school and learning white people's version of the founding of this nation. Mm. And that's why well, now we have to challenge ourselves and each other to be consistent. If you marched in protest yesterday about knowledge, but then the next day you took an exam in which you were falsely Pilgrims, your compliance with that exam erases the protest that you So that's the consistency yes. that we need. And we've centuries the importance of consistency. White people are going to keep doing what they do. Same thing if we're talking about sexuality and gender. The power majority is going to keep doing what they do. And they, you've been brainwashed to believe that inconsistency is valid. I think you said so much. <laughs> you, you said so, so many beautiful things. Um, because I think truth is beautiful, even if it's hard for uh, some people to take in and hear. But I think we can't really sit in this sense of uh, willful ignorance, especially with our own community. Um, I think we, as you said, <laughs> see the... Um, true lack of motivation and really no advantage past, you know, this, a sense of, I guess, feeling better when you do walk in a room full of black people. Um, there's really not much, much incentive to change the way that life is from a lot of, uh, for a lot of 
white Americans and white and white people, white identifying people all over the the world. Um, I think they're they're definitely you know blind and drunk to the power to, that the positioning and the and of their identity really holds in the world that we live in. But I do want at least our people to get to get informed and and to really truly assess the lives the lives they want to live with this particular information because they are more informed. They are they're not truly waiting on someone to tell them what to do and um, and understanding exactly what it is that they need to know about themselves, claim for themselves, and um, and proclaim every and really truly just proclaim in every time that they step out the door. Um, my last my last question, my send it on portion of the episode is uh, my call of action episode, call of action segment. And uh, I wanted to kind of send it off and be and get your particular perspective. Um, but I guess because we are so many people are shifting, changing um, careers, you know, some people going back to school, so many different things are happening right now due to, I believe, the the true um, real world shifting um, events that happened in 2020. I think everyone's realizing they have to live their lives um, to the fullest and um, aspire even higher than they were before. And so my send it on question to you would, would be, um, how does a black person pursuing, I guess just pursuing new employment, um, I guess assess the true culture of that potential uh, new employer? How do they, how, how, how does one truly understand like, yeah, this, this isn't gonna work, this is gonna work, what I guess what tools or what information or what sense of discernment do you think people should kind of walk into those interviews with? So it's interesting you ask that because I actually did a presentation this week for youth and particularly it was mostly black youth, but they mm -hmm. were talking about how to be an entrepreneur, how to build a business. Mm. And it's always interesting because with the business I have, I always, I always start off as an activist, and of course, I was a full-time professor. Yes. And as I explained to the youth this week, I'm not going to sell you the nonsense version of the story of building a business and being an entrepreneur. Mm. That anyone can do it. That kind of thing. Because not everyone's going to have a business. Um, you can talk about that in terms of bank loans, how it's intentionally designed for certain people. You can talk about that in terms of, <clears throat> depending on who your audience is going to be for your business, culture literally shapes everything. There's no such thing as a cookie cutter, one size fits all. Our identities and our experiences shape everything that we do. And when I hear Black people say, well, race doesn't matter for this. I'm like, is that because you've convinced yourself it doesn't matter or because it really doesn't matter? Usually it's because people convince themselves. So the same thing with the workplace, with people who are changing their workplace. Some people are deciding to focus more on working from home. Some people are shifting to a new career. Mm -hmm. As I told the youth this week, freedom, liberation, and justice means having options. So most of our people will always live paycheck to paycheck and always will be in debt. So now connect with the community groups that have actually been helping our people do things like invest in an equity line of credit, invest 
building wealth, which does not mean you will be wealthy in terms of a millionaire. I want our people to understand what building means. There's all sorts of community groups, black community groups in particular, have been doing this work for generations. It's They've been doing it without being the lines. They've been doing it without being funded a lot of time. Fortunately, most black people only trust something if it's created by white people. That's a part of the brainwashing as well there. Mm. So I tell our people, if you really want to shift your career, including if you want to go back into school, build your networks. Mm. So that's old school. Mark, Dr. Mark Granovetter, he's a white social scientist, white man, a long time ago, he wrote about the strength of weak ties. And so mm-hmm. when I do presentations for school officials and communities, we talk about the importance of building up our capital, yes. cultural capital, yes. which pertains to our demographics, social capital, which is networking, And then we have human capital, which are our own skills. Like what do we bring to the table? Which oftentimes people have way more skills than they give themselves credit. Because as black people, most of us come from spaces that are a very European white version of what knowledge means. Mm. So a lot of times, like when I see videos of black people dancing, including Africans dancing, people will say, why do we always got to dance? Well, let me tell you this. Art and music has always been a form of knowledge and science. Mm. Like when I do presentations for medical and health students, guess what I have them do? I have them draw out the body part, make it into art, and tell me how they would explain this disease to the community. Mm. That is artistic expression. So, you know, the GOAT, my favorite MC is Rakim. So put it in a hip hop lyric. Yeah. You know, and I have friends and colleagues who do the same thing. We say, we're going into these spaces. You know, I'm gonna go into this, talking about Rakim's 21 MCs, and how are you gonna apply this to the information you're trying to convey to this audience? Yes. So I want our people to understand that knowledge and sciences and so forth come in different forms. Mm. So if you wanna change your workforce, you're gonna have to expand how you define workforce as well well like if you want a different job and you want to know if it's an equity-based job which is not only race but gender sexuality health conditions insurance if that's relevant you have to ask yourself how do i know how do i define equity like let's say you go into the space and it's a bunch of black people that's an equity space because you can go into a space where it's a bunch of black people who hired you and everything they do is designed by white people. Mm. Their funders may be white people. So you go into that space, you're thinking this is an open black space, but the moment you say something that's challenging to the white standard that they're going by, they gonna get rid of you somehow, okay? So, mm. so I tell people, there's one thing, if you're desperate for a job, sometimes you don't have the time and the resources to have those criteria. But this is where I also tell our people the importance of saving money, which is why we have black organizations in many cities that are teaching our people to save money so that if you need to make a life transition or need to pay some medical bills, you're not desperate. Yes. Because 
the oppressor loves desperation. Mm-hmm. Right? When they oppress people, they oppress people because they know you're not going to say no. Why? Because you need that money. Yes. So changing your workforce, I literally tell people, literally get everything out your mind. This is like a mental health session. Get everything out your mind and put it on paper. Mm. What do you consider your purpose of existing in life? Mm. Do you have do you have a bank account? Do you have some way that you've been holding on to money beyond cash? Because that can go missing, it can be stolen, whatever the case may be. What is your goal in life? You don't have to think 10 years up the road, but let's say you want to go back to school. Let's say you want to change jobs. Is it based on happiness or is it based on money? Because those are not synonymous. Yes. Making a lot of money and you are miserable going to work every single day. Plenty of people who are. Yep. And does the workplace sacrifice your health, Mm. mental health and physical health? Mm. So many of our people, you know, Black people in particular, we talk about substance use that includes alcoholism, smoking cigarettes, vaping, all of these things that are done that are part of substance use and oftentimes are done because that's how a lot of Black people handle stress. Yes. That includes, you know, people with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, people who hear voices. A lot of black people have been taught to never tell anyone that they hear voices. So therefore they're more likely to drink a lot, take a lot of medication, be high all day. And that's the way people address it. So I want our people to know that changing your job, changing your entire career needs to include thinking about what, if it was an ideal world, would you do like, what do you prefer to do? It might not be a realistic hope right now, yes. but write down. And in many city force development programs, there are also chambers of commerce and start talking to people. Tell them, you know, I don't necessarily expect to find a new job tomorrow, but this is something I'm looking for in the next six months. I've gotten my workforce goal out there See if there are people who will help you develop your resume. See if there are people who will help you change your career. Over the years, I've done career development with my students, mostly black students. And I'll do a session where it goes back to that Grand Nevada Strength of Weak Ties. Mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, all of y'all are in this classroom. Ain't none of y'all talking to each other. Now I want you to talk to someone who you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Black women in particular, introduce themselves to each other. And guess what? Many of my students have gotten jobs because they learned that someone who was in the same classroom is the person who hires people for the job. Mm. And sometimes a job that the student had previously applied for. Oh, that's the, that's the strength of networking. White people do not have proportionately more gainful employment because white people are more knowledgeable. Mm. It's always been a result of network. And if anyone's interested, sociologist, Dr. Deidre Royster, that's D-E-I-D-R-E, Royster, R-O-Y-S-T-E-R. If you look at her book where she talks about this invisible factor of race as it pertains to networking. Mm. So if you if you do an internet search for Deidre Royster, you'll see that she's written about what it feels like to be a biracial black woman 
and also the book that she wrote on the cover of the book. It's a brown book with a black man on the front. And she was talking about working class white men and working class black men and what it meant when working class white men perceived threat when there were more black men coming into the workforce. Mm, I'm going to have to read that one. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really good book. It's somewhere on my bookshelf in here. (laughs) It's a really important book because it's about this whole race and the invisible hand of capitalism. Yes. Whenever you hear people say things like, um, and you'll hear this a lot when people talk about the importance of communism, they make the mistake that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels made and other people, where they pretend that capitalism is race neutral and therefore communism will be as well. They'll say that it's about class surpassing race, but all of our identities always interlock with all of this. So for Black people who are preparing for that workforce shift, you want to network, you want to not just talk to the people you already know, but talk to the people you've never met before. Mm. Email some people, you found their information on a website, you might have gone to a business networking event from meetup.com or Eventbrite. Black people have a tendency to be very nervous they never talk to, and that's especially for Black women. And so I tell people that they need to meet people who they've never met before and introduce themselves to people they've never introduced themselves to before. Mm. And Black I, I, people are I'm, more likely to not do that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I received that, and I take that in as definitely um, instructions that I needed now more than ever. Um, just because I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, making a lot of major changes in my own life, I think that's something that I really, really needed to um, to hear is some, some really great advice. Because I definitely think in terms of day-to-day lifestyle is what I think I put a lot of energy into. Mm-hmm. But um, and in terms of how I want my life to be, and I think I'm realizing how much of that um, particular approach has to go along with the work that you do, too. And if you want that to be different, if you want that to, you know, for you to gain more from those things, um, not even the easiest way, one of the best ways is to truly change the people that you speak the most to, to people that you now have access to, to get whatever, you know, either nuggets of information to then further to your next step or uh, truly be someone to help you um, move to the next level, Um, even if it's just truly just being a person to, you know, converse with about your field. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, um, you know, taking time to not expect quick goals. Because yes. when we're talking about that strength of weak ties, like Dr. Granovetter talks about, and then we connect the Deidre Royster's Race and the Invisible Hand. Yes. And um, all that work that has been done over the decades. Black people have a tendency when you tell Black people to make certain connections with people who they consider random, they'd be like, I don't know that person. And they're mm-hmm. afraid of showing up in a spot and shaking someone's hand and the person be like, who are you? Yes. And I'm like, look, success literally is difficult. Some people will be rude. Some people will ignore your email. Some people will ignore your voicemail. But that's the whole thing about progress. Never, ever believe that anyone in this world is in progress because they're just that awesome. You know, that's a very, very, you know, like when people, like white people in particular, when they progress in careers or when white people or 
anyone, but oftentimes it's white people who tend to pretend that they progressed as a CEO or they got a PhD or they became wealthy because they're awesome. Um, they might've come from wealth or they might've come from poverty and being white buffered the effects of working class. We always have to remember there's no such thing as a human who gets to where they are in success because they showed up smiling and um, they're just so knowledgeable. There's always a need for people to understand how knowledge develops and how networks develop as well. And so I don't want scared to build those networks as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've received that. And I hope everyone listening receives that as well. Um, before I let you go, I would love for you to um, tell everyone how they can support you, how they can um, just pour into you and whatever they can. Please let everyone know. Thank you so much. So you can go to 365diversity.com to look at my website. When you scroll down, I always have to tell people to scroll down for some reason. A lot of people don't realize when you scroll down, there are photos. You can find my health equity resume, my general resume, and guess what? There's many links to podcasts. So eventually this podcast will also be on my website. Hey, hey. 365diversity.com. You can email me at Kenya at 365diversity.com. So that's K-I-M-Y-A at 365diversity.com. You can, and you can find my public writings and everything also on my website. And if you want to donate, you can donate to me via PayPal, Cash App, and you can actually email me if you need, have any questions about that. Also, I'm 100% about collaborations. I do not like when people consider themselves the inventor of something that has been done for centuries and thousands of years. Mm. So all of my work is about collaboration. So for racial justice, I collaborate. For gender justice, I collaborate. For sexuality justice, for health justice, I collaborate. And if you want to collaborate, you can contact me with that as well. Just keep in mind, my collaborations do not involve censorship. Huh. So you want to collaborate, <laughs> but you are one of those people who wants social justice, but it requires white people to be happy and men to not be challenged in terms of gender equity and all that mm-hmm. stuff. We will not be able to collaborate because it's impossible to talk about dismantling oppression if the oppressor is still in power. And I want people to understand that because, you know, a lot of people act like in their, they act like they're in elementary school. They can't compromise, they can't comprehend like health equity that dismantles the power majority. Cause like, hmm. if we're talking about 529 years of medical racism, you can't get rid of medical racism if white people are still the decision makers for medical school yes. or <laughs> medical facilities that it's impossible to have equity if the people at the top are still at the top. That's not equity. That's people giving you permission to live. And I don't know about you, but I don't need white people's permission to live. I don't need men's permission to live. I don't need any of that. So there you go. And I'll take it. I'll take it. If you don't know, now you know, you can look at, you can look at the Simply King podcast now streaming on uh, YouTube, but also um, you can listen to the Simply King podcast everywhere podcasts are streamed. Make sure that you like, rate, and subscribe. Make sure that you go to all of the sites that Dr. 
Kenya Dennis let us know all about. I'm going to make sure I put those in the description below. Um, no matter where you're listening on, you'll be able to get to it even quicker uh, if you're listening to this now. Um, you can follow me everywhere at the simply at Simply King Pod on IG and it's Kings underscore memoirs everywhere else. Um, please, please, please make sure you do the one thing I need you to do, and that's share. Um, this is I make family size content and you will be very remiss if you ate that whole bag of chips by yourself. Please give a little bit to somebody else, you know, give a, just give a chip or two. And um, I appreciate you. Uh, and I really, truly um, enjoyed this conversation. I know that it was definitely impactful for so many different people. Um, this has been the Soulfully Conscious Podcast for humans simply being humans. I've been Rodney Perry. This has been Dr. Kimya Naru Dennis. And this has been Simply King. Peace.